But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. The Lord bless his word and bless Judy as she speaks to us. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I like this title, Mythbusters. Uh, very appropriate as the new Ghostbusters uh, movie is just out, with women busting the ghosts, apparently, not men this time. Uh, so apparently it's very good. I haven't seen it yet. But over the summer, we are looking at myth busting. And uh, you might think, well, as Christians, hopefully we don't believe any myths. We believe in the truth. Uh, but actually, myths can get into our theology, can't they? They can get into our thinking almost unperceived. And they can come from all sorts of sources, as we'll see over the next few weeks. But my task this morning is to look at the first myth that we're uncovering that may have become weaved in as fiction that we've believed in our lives. And that is the statement, you will never amount to anything. You will never amount to anything. Now, that was the, the title that, that I was given, and I thought, actually, there are many versions of that that we will have heard in our thinking, that maybe something was spoken over us as a child, uh, maybe it was as a young adult, maybe we were told that our life was a mistake. Whatever that is, it can get so immersed in our reactions and in our core beliefs that we almost don't realize that it's there. Gordon MacDonald recently said that every time he sits down daily to pray, he realizes that he needs to adjust his past again to his present because he knows that he reacts to things out of his past. And when I heard that, I thought that's so true of me. That is so true of me. There are things that are touch points that I react to that actually probably don't have a lot to do with the present, but have everything to do with my past. So as we uncover this, we look at Rahab. We're not going to spend the whole time looking at Rahab. We'll look at, uh, at what Jesus says about this and also look at the thief on the cross as well. But actually, the Bible blissfully is full of people who in human terms shouldn't make it and yet make a phenomenal difference for the kingdom. William Barclay says that we only really begin to understand our worth when we look at our lives in the context of eternity. And I just wanted to say, and I've been praying about today, just wanted to say to you that if you are a follower of Jesus today, then actually you are part of God's global eternal plan. And there is nobody else that he can use in the way that he wants to use you. You may have heard it before. You might say, I've heard that many times. But I say it to myself as I say it to you, that we need to hear it again in our spirit today that actually you fundamentally have been created. We have been created by a God for a purpose. And Rahab was somebody who was in the wrong city, doing the wrong job, in the wrong gender. Now, let me just unpack that before suddenly everybody jumps up. Um, at that time, 
obviously to be a woman was quite a powerless situation in many, many ways. And this family that she so clearly defends, as we've just heard, don't seem to be present in terms of her providing. She is providing through prostitution. So how touching then that her plea is to save a mother and father who clearly at this moment in time are not able to provide for her. She is a prostitute. She's a prostitute, she's a woman, and she's in the city of Jericho, and a city of idolatry, as we've heard before. So if you think of her status in every respect, really everything seems stacked against her. In human terms, everything seems stacked against her. And actually, in a way, the Bible takes no prisoners in that if you like her job or her sin, whatever you like to call it, becomes her label, doesn't it? She becomes the harlot. She's spoken of three times in this chapter as the harlot. And and isn't that true of us, that sometimes the repetitive sin that we have in our lives becomes a label that we wear, and we identify ourselves as a moral failure, as an academic failure, as a, a faithful failure, whatever that is, that we can actually start to believe that myth. But Rahab is an interesting one, because when these spies come into her life, into her home, she sees and hears something that the living God is at work. She senses, she's heard the stories, and she really honors them and says, I will rescue you. I will rescue you. I will protect you. And I think what's interesting here, whatever has led her to this profession that she's in, she may well be a brilliant host. She may have a wonderful gift of hospitality. That's how she's remembered, actually, in terms of her kindness, in terms of her welcome. And yet, somehow, her strength has become her dark side in what she's gone, fallen into. And I've learned in, in leadership training and in my own life that my greatest strengths are also my key areas of sinning. And I think if you think about your strengths, and hopefully I'll have talked to you about them, or if I haven't, then do talk to me afterwards, because I love doing that uh, through something called Strength Finder that we use as a church. But we have a, a shadow side of our strengths that actually can lead us into the wilderness and can lead us into actually putting labels on ourselves or letting others do that for us. So Rahab, if you like, has these labels, wrong job, wrong gender, wrong city. And yet she sees that the living God is at work and she says to the men that she will help them. She says, your God is the living God who drained the Red Sea, who let the people come out of Egypt. If you like, she says, your God is a rest rescuer and I need to be part of that rescue and that is true for us today that we are part of God's rescue plan for the world and boy was there ever a time where they needed it do you think you know when we put the news on Interestingly, I was listening to an interview uh, just this week with Julia Wilkinson, who you may not know her name, but she is the new chaplain for the British team uh, at the Olympics in Rio in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, She's come through Christians in Sport. She's quite a young girl, and that is her privilege. And she will be there with the athletes, particularly the runners, every day to chaplain them, to pastor them through their successes and failures. And the guy who did it before said to her, it's like attending seven funerals and one wedding. 
It's not really going to buoy you up, is it, for that? But she said, actually, she said she's learned that this is a tough job because actually what the athletes do is they run and rerun, sometimes on a big screen for all to see, every false start, every false jump, and they see it over and over again. And that is their obsession, not with the winning bit, but why, was, why did I do that false start? Why did I do that false jump? Why did I do that low time? And her goal has got to be to steer them. Very interesting, isn't it? We see all the glory, but to steer them through their failures. And as I heard that, I thought that is so true of us. We replay it, replay it over and over again, and we define it as that myth, and then that voice comes in, you're a mess, your life will never amount to anything. And the truth of the gospel, the truth that Rahab leads us to, if you like, the rescue of Jesus in the New Testament, is that the truth will set us free. And that you and I can replace, and I know this because it's worked for me, we can replace the lies with truth about ourselves. Not just overnight, but daily, as Gordon MacDonald says, adjusting, aligning our paths to the truth of the present. The verdict is in on you, and God thought you were worth dying for. So everything that we're trying to accomplish at the moment comes from that place of God absolutely loving you that much. He loved Rahab enough not to leave her where she was, but to send spies to her house to make her part of a rescue plan that leads to the lineage of Jesus. Interestingly, in the interview that I referred to, there are two runners that are mentioned. Um, Julia Wilkinson talks about athletic history of the Olympics, and she mentions two names that we will know well, Harold Abrahams and Eric Liddell, if you've seen the film Chariots of Fire. And uh, they have two versions of the same 100-meter race. Abrahams says, it was 10 seconds of pure loneliness to justify my very existence. 10 seconds of pure loneliness to justify my existence. And the same race, Little says, God has made me fast and I feel his pleasure when I run. And I guess my heart for this talk is that we find the second, not the first, to be true. That we speak the second over our lives, not the first. That we're not living lives that are lonely, that are trying to achieve something that is unobtainable, that is trying to live for a significance that actually God already has placed within us. He's already said, your life counts for everything. It's worth dying for. So Rahab is rescued to become a rescuer to lead us to the ultimate rescuer. She gave birth in the end to Boaz, who we know leads to, uh, when, she, when Boaz marries Ruth, leads to the lineage of David and to Jesus. A prostitute, her heritage, if you like, her dynasty leads to Jesus Christ. God has always chosen the outsider, the unlikely, the failure, the stuff up, to be part of a major, major rescue rescue plan that he has for each of us. In the Talmud that the Jews uh, read, um, they say this, that every blade of grass has an angel bending over it, whispering, grow, grow. 
We grow through our trials. We grow like those athletes from our false starts, from our false runs. We grow from falling and from getting up again. Paul says that in Christ, the whole redeemed community grows and builds itself up in love. God loves you so much today that he doesn't want to leave you where you are. He doesn't want you to be wearing this myth or this label in your life. And actually, there are things, tapes that you're playing, that actually are maybe just still a chain around you that God wants to release, even perhaps as we take communion today and replace it with his truth about you, about every one of us. Craig Groeschel, I think that's how you pronounce his name, says there is more in you than you can imagine. He has placed treasure in you and your life will amount to way more than you could ever dream of. Uh, I don't know if you remember when the banking system changed and we all had to change how we did checks. We had to cross checks. Who's old enough to remember what crossing a check uh, looks like? Okay, oh, not, not very many of us. I'm feeling very old. Um, well, actually, um, there was a man who I worked with for many years. It was my privilege to work with him who was the reason for that change. He was called on the front page of The Sun the king of the con men. He defrauded the Bank of England out of so much money that they had to change the entire banking system. If you met him, he looked like a little peppermint granddad. Do you know what I mean? He had a little stomach like this, some very sweet little braces, smiley face, gorgeous. You would not dream in a million years meeting him of the devious acts of his uh, younger days. And he was called, as I said, he went to prison for many, many years as the king of the con men. That was his name. That was how he was addressed even in the prison. He was given quite a lot of kudos in the prison, spending his later years in Dartmoor prison. And that was his name. And in his cell, having been arrested by an officer who was a Christian, another friend of ours, a man called Peter Barnes, who prayed for him and tried to share the gospel with him even after his arrest and even went in to see him, he sat in his cell and he heard God's voice very clearly say, I want to give you a new name. Now, he's called Doug, nothing much wrong with that, very nice name. Uh, but he, he thought, well, why would God want to give me a different name to Doug? But actually, he thought, actually, my label is king of the con men. That's the label this world has given me, and I deserve it. If he was here now, he's in glory now. But if he was here now, he would say that he deserved that label. And yet the grace of Jesus Christ met with him by God's spirit in his cell and said to him, Doug, I'm giving you a new name that he's loved, that he's beloved by God. And he spent his, his later years, and there weren't many of them left, he'd served a long sentence, and he went round with us as a theatre company, going into prisons, speaking to young men and women, and saying, do not let this crime define you. Do not let this crime, and if you've messed up, maybe even this week, you've done something dishonest, or you've, you've, you've approached somebody in a wrong way, whatever that is, that actually we don't wear that label. When we come to communion in a few moments, we come actually and we lay that down as we've just been singing, and we say, that doesn't define me. Why? Because the verdict is in, and we are forgiven. If God could use a prostitute in the wrong city, wrong gender, wrong job, he can certainly use us here in Bourneville, wherever our weaknesses, wherever our brokenness lies. And not only that, but he's wanting to do it. He's wanting to use us in incredible ways. Doug, 
actually brought many, many men to faith that I don't think many other people could have reached. Why? Because of his past. God didn't want him to con the Bank of England out of all that money, but nevertheless, he redeemed that for his glory. He didn't want Rahab to be exploited as a woman in Jericho, as a prostitute, yet he redeemed that in an incredible way. She showed faith. In Hebrews 11, she is the, one of only two women who are mentioned by Paul, actually saying that she will be known for her kindness, for her hesed, for her love, for her steadfastness. Oh, something bit happened, happened there. Um, ben Palfant, who um, uh, wrote the book uh, A Cup of My Life, uh, really written when he was uh, diagnosed with a brain disorder and was wondering about um, um, really kind of what, what this looked like for his faith. Um, he says this, he says, a world in which suffering serves as the soil from which resurrection springs. Little did I know that God was not testing my faith in order to find out its quality. I was the one who had not measured its buoyancy. I knew not of the durability nor the power of its wing. It's a very beautiful statement, really written in the darkest of times by a man who actually self-published online and uh, really said, actually, in your wilderness, in your pain, there is something that God does that is incredible in terms of his protection, in terms of the durability uh, of him and faith. And what happened to Rahab was she stood with her scarlet rope with all around her shaking, literally shaking, and she stood obedient to God for her and for her family. She held on, held out for all that is good. I've got a really good quote to finish on, if I can find it. Yes, yeah, from a book, Rising Strong, uh, by Brené Brown. And uh, she talks about our failures, about our labels, about the threat, if you like, to our self-esteem. She says, there is no greater threat to the critics and cynics and fearmongers than those of us who are willing to fall because we have learned how to rise. With skimmed knees and bruised hearts, we choose owning our stories of struggle. We choose owning them over hiding, over pretending. We craft love from heartbreak, compassion from shame, grace from disappointment, courage from failure. And, and I love that. It's in a book called Rising Strong, which I thoroughly recommend. Some of you are smiling and, and you know her work. But Brené Brown, a brilliant, brilliant uh, psychologist, but also somebody who's done a lot of research into vulnerability, the power of vulnerability. And actually, if we're to reach the next generation, the one coming up perhaps after our youngsters here, we will only do that if we're prepared to be vulnerable. We have to be. In a world where people have been sold so many lies, we have to be able to be vulnerable and to be able to actually speak truth. And Brené Brown has said it's okay to, to, to really fail as long as we find grace in getting back up again. And actually, um, I know for myself that actually my failures <clears throat> in my life have informed my faith every bit as much as my successes. That actually the brokenness that I have experienced 
because what has really, really helped me to draw alongside other people. Interestingly, just this week, um, I uh, had met up ages ago with somebody, uh, a young girl, whose mother had contacted me out of the blue and said, I really feel you're the person to sit down with her. She's got a phobia about faith. Can you imagine? Couldn't even hear the name of Jesus. She was so brutally... Uh, affected by a spiritual experience that she'd seen, that she wanted nothing to do with faith, nothing to do with anything. And I went round, talked to her, uh, prayed over her in my heart, but not out loud. And uh, I said, you know, is there any way that you would come along to maybe a group at my church? Is there any way you do? And she was a flat no. I've very rarely in my life ever been turned down in quite the same emphatic way. Usually if you offer to pray for people, they, they say yes, don't they, surprisingly. It's shared but it was a flat no and I drove away that day thinking failure you know back into your label failure Judy mum thought Judy could do it Judy failed okay so I drove away thinking that now I did recover from that you'll be pleased to hear Uh, but that was the tape in my head that this mum had reached out to me thought that perhaps with my persuasion if you like I could do it and I couldn't Then yesterday, uh, while praying, thinking actually about today, I got a message through uh, Messenger on Facebook from her saying, I'm ready to meet up with you. I'm ready to risk church again if you'll have me. Um, And I don't think that means church in this setting yet. But how incredible. You know, we do not know the end of the story. We don't even know the middle of the story, but we get so easily knocked because we read the tape or we rerun the tape that says failure, didn't do a good job, didn't make the grade, your life won't amount to very much. So as we come to communion, let's think for a moment at the thief on the cross that there were two people in the New Testament, in the chapter in Luke, that were actually crucified either side of Jesus. And one of them chose to mock him and sort of really, really take the mick out of him to mock him. And the other one, in his final speech in this world, said, don't do that. Surely this is is the the king of the Jews. Surely this is the man that he says he is. Surely this is a man who's spoken truth. Remember me when you are with your father. And actually Jesus turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Who's the one person we know from scripture is in heaven? Apart from Jesus. (laughs) So this is the answer, isn't it? It's actually a thief. It's actually somebody who died a criminal's death. So we can come, we can approach the throne of grace as we come to communion, saying our life costs Jesus everything. Isn't it worth living it with faith, living it with hope, living it with courage, and actually living it saying even my mess-ups, even the worst about me, can in God's hand become the best about me. Uh, Let's just be quiet for a moment. I'm just going to read some words for us. This is perhaps thinking each of us as a, a broken cup. Love pours into you the broken cup that cannot receive. You're too pained, too discouraged, too ashamed too broken-hearted, too burnt out, 
too lonely, too disenchanted. And yet love waits to strengthen you. Love <clears throat> waits to nourish you. Love waits to be received. Love waits to heal and restore you. For in time, this cup will be mended. In time, this cup will be raised. In time, this cup will receive again. Lord, every one of us is, is chipped. Every one of us is a cup that is broken, that has cracks in it, that has chips on the rim. Lord, we take heart today that you used someone who had a label of harlot, a label of shame, to lead people to your very self. And we, as broken pieces of your kingdom, broken people of your kingdom today, would ask that you would do that, that you would replace the myth that we won't amount to anything, the myth of failure, the myth of self-degradation with the truth. But Jesus says the truth will set us free. And in the quiet now, just pray that you'd receive the truth again of God's infinite, unfathomable, undeserved, yet unfailing love for every one of us. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Amen. <clears throat>